Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. And welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic. Rather than making recommendations because everyone's circumstances are different, we talk to subject matter experts of how they would recommend thinking about that decision. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia, which is where we are recording today. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please also consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So today's decision that we're going to discuss is, should I consider selling my business? And for most people in business, there will never be a bigger decision you ever have to make in your life than whether, when, how and on what terms to sell your business. And selling a business is made even more challenging because most people only do it once in their life. And there are a few people that, that are serial entrepreneurs, and we're going to talk to one in a second. But most people, if they've had a good run, they sell their business, they get out, and then they, they go do something else, particularly if they happen to be good at, at leisure. Um, and And... The thing about selling a business, and I'll be the first to admit this, even though I advise people on selling businesses and I charge exorbitant fees for helping people do so, is that it actually, when you get right down to it, it's not rocket science, but a lot of it isn't necessarily intuitive. And the process of even wrestling with the decision on whether to sell a business is is often such an emotionally entwined decision that has far-reaching implications even outside of the business itself that it can be very challenging to have a clear head when you're approaching that that decision and you know generally speaking in selling a business there is no do-over right once you sort of sign those documents and money comes out of escrow and if you have that kind of business the keys are turned over if it's a virtual business then all the the, the passcodes passwords are are, are handed over that's sort of it. So um, if you have sellers or more, so you're really, your only real recourse is to start a new business and do better the next time. So it's an important decision to get right, and it's one that, you, like I said, you don't really get a mulligan on this. And um, in trying to figure who would be the best person to talk about this, I'm fortunate that a friend of mine actually is one of those few that has actually sold multiple businesses. So he's he's been through a few uh, of these rodeos, and he hasn't just sold them. He hasn't sold them for other people. They're actually uh, his businesses. And so, without further ado, I'm going to introduce my pal Ed Ricker, uh, who has come all the way from Avondale Estates. Which, if you look at a map of Atlanta, should be about a 10 minute drive. But the way our highways are set up, it basically is about an hour and a half. So, um, I really appreciate him coming into the studio today because he's also got a 90 minute drive back. Um, but Ed has actually started and sold four businesses, at least four of which I'm aware. He'll correct me once he comes on. But he's currently CEO of the Avondale Innovation District in Avondale Estates, Georgia. 
He is also the owner-principal of Tudor Square, a community-oriented quality, dining, shopping, and entertainment venue supporting small independent business owners in downtown Avondale Estates, Georgia. He is the general manager of the 151 Locust Fund 1 LLC, which is a fund established for the purpose of providing seed funding to Metro Atlanta technology startups. Ed was also the mayor of Avondale Estates for six years and is an adjunct faculty member in the Emory University Business School's Startup Launch Accelerator Program. Ed Ricker, your honor. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. So, um, by the way, I took a jet pack here. I did, did you take so a jet I, pack? Yeah, I think yeah, that's the best yeah, way to get yeah, here. Ten minutes. Yeah. That, really? Yeah. Now, thank God for thank God for Georgia Tech inventing that stuff, man. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, let's dive into. There's a lot of ground we can cover. I hope we can cover all of it. Can you talk to us a little bit about the businesses that you have actually owned and sold? Uh, absolutely. I'm mostly a software guy. So, uh, the businesses that I've founded or co-founded were really about software, about the creation of value through, uh, pushing little buttons to make stuff happen. So, um, and I've had the privilege of being on some really great teams and, uh, also being able to cash out, uh, a few times. So, um, started in, um, uh, uh, 1988, when you weren't born yet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you silver tongue devil. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, so what we did was we uh, built a software system that um, actually uh, worked with hospital systems and large systems to kind of uh, get people uh, in the hospital as quickly as possible. And it was, what it turned out to be really was a marketing thing. And so we built that up, sold that to a group of investors in, uh, 1991. And then, uh, I was a minority shareholder in that. I had an angel investor that had put money into that. Then the next one, we, uh, also were, was in healthcare. I think once you get to be in a domain, um, you get to know people. They get to know you. You start to kind of build a reputation. So healthcare has been very, very good to me. And I've done four healthcare startups and sold three of those, two of those to public companies. And then in uh, 2004, I actually bought an online community because I'm very interested in community. And uh, built Yes, a, you are. <laughs> yes, that, I am. That's definitely yeah. been your MO. Uh, and, and both online and in the real world. And it's just fascinating to... Uh, see how people work together and how they don't work together and, and what they need and, and how we might be able to help. But we built that online community up and sold that to a public company in 2011. So that's kind of the story is the ability to um, build a, a, a solution, a tool that uh, solves a problem, uh, build a team, build it up. And then uh, the first one I think you mentioned uh, was really difficult to sell because I was a minority shareholder. Um, it was, uh, it, it was everything to me at the time. And, uh, when it got sold, it, uh, here's the thing though. When you, you talked about the escrow, the cash coming in and, you know, you think about buying the yacht, uh, but you missed a step. And that's the part where you have to stick around for a little bit and and uh, deal with the new owners. So that was the first time I had done that. And, um, and it you know, what happened was is they kind of put me in a room 
and ignored me for a while. And, uh, and then I watched them kind of do what they wanted to do. So you, you can't make decisions anymore because you've sold it. You're exactly right. But normally once you sell it, uh, especially like a software business, any other business, you're, you're going to be there for a while to watch that transition. So that can be a, a difficult thing. And over the years, I've been able to kind of uh, look at the idea of building with the end in mind, which is to sell it. So now, uh, uh, what was that transition like? I mean, I, I I know you personally. I don't see you as a very good employee, I'm a and I mean that with all the yeah, love I'm I can a, possibly muster. Yes, absolutely. But I'm I a, consider myself and my firm will tell you I'm a terrible right, employee. Yeah. I'm a terrible employee. I will admit that. And, uh, and I think the first time I sold, I was also a terrible seller because I was so emotionally involved and, and so, uh, focused on what I thought was right for the business. But, um, I didn't have any say anymore. I didn't have any vote anymore. So, um, it becomes very difficult to hang around and, and see people do things that you probably don't agree with. And, uh, and also remember the alignment I had with the sellers was, um, you know, they had the money, they had a, an idea of what they thought they wanted to do. And, um, and I really didn't know them that well. And when you start to kind of, uh, see the team, uh, change and see kind of what, what they think is right, uh, it can be very difficult for a seller to kind of be in that world. Most, most of the time after you sell something, if you look at the, the statistics, the CEO goes bye-bye in about six months, the old CEO. I was going to ask you about that because most, most sales I've seen, if the CEO is asked to remain at all, it's a two- to three-year period. Right. But I don't think most CEOs actually wind up serving out that term. Yeah, they're usually gone in, in six months. And, and that's the thing you have to learn about in the terms of selling. There's things like earnouts. Um, so when you get to the part where you agree on what the value is and what the terms are, part of that term can be the offer of, oh, we'll double the sale, you know, what we're buying you for if you'll stay and hit these metrics. And uh, normally that's kind of phantom money. That's really hard to do because you don't have control over how to reach those metrics anymore. Right. So. I mean, the special sauce that you brought is now not being used anymore. It's just sitting in the refrigerator, the label on it saying, add special sauce. Right. You're lucky if it's in the fridge. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I can't shake this vision. I mean, you know, having you sort of being put in a room and you sort of watch everybody do their thing with the business after you've sold it. And you just sort of have to be at peace with your powerlessness. Yeah, you and, and I wasn't. I absolutely wasn't. I mean, uh, I, I think I was probably a bad seller at that point because um, I looked around and, you know, it wasn't going in the direction and as well as I thought it could go. And uh, so, you know, uh, I, I didn't really stay for the whole six months. I kind of bugged out of there because uh, I had other things to do. Yeah? Yeah. It, your experience with that sounds like my experience parenting a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You watch it, but there's only so much in impact you can ultimately have. It's sort of, it's just going to happen. So how long did you own those businesses before selling them? So I'm looking at my notes here and I think, uh, 88 to 91. So what's the math? That's three years. So I probably worked 
worked on well a little bit longer than that. So probably looks like the average is three to four years. Okay. Yeah. That's not particularly long. Even in venture capital, that's a fairly quick turnaround. Well, I, I like small teams and early stage stuff. And, uh, so, um, I like building it up to a certain point. And one of the things I think that, uh, if you're a business owner of any kind of type, what you want to see is that every six months or so, the phone rings and somebody says, hey, you know, I'm thinking about uh, doing business with you or a transaction with you. And it evolves in this sort of, uh, hey, we thinking about buying you. If you're not getting that call every six months or that activity every six months, then I feel like there's something wrong with your business. Huh. Um, because that's one of the key indicators that you're on to demand is that, is that you get these situations where maybe you're serving a large customer and they say, well, you know, maybe we should buy you instead of being a customer. So you want to kind of see those things happen every six months. If that, does, if that's not happening, then there's something wrong with the business. I'm going to go off the script because I, I think that is an insightful point that I want to explore a little bit more because I would not have thought of that in a million years, but I think I get it. So let me tell you what I think I get, and you tell me why I'm wrong. Um, and what I think I get is people want to buy you because they notice you and they're making an impact, and you're so important they can't not af- they can't afford to not you being available at some point down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And, and it's the notice part and the can't live without you part. That drives the price up. It, it could be a strategic or a, a technology acquisition. And most of the stuff that we did was a technology acquisition because we had found a pocket somewhere in healthcare that we were serving. And it was important enough to the large corporation that, that, that instead of building it, um, they would try to buy it. And that's exactly kind of what you're looking at. So that, that's interesting. So kind of a bullet point is, yeah, I, a lot of business owners will tell me that you know they get annoyed, they get offers to potentially buy and sell, and they don't want to do that. But in a way, you know, if you're getting those calls, even if they're not particularly serious, the fact that you're on somebody's radar screen means you're doing something right. Yeah, that's in terms correct. of the market. And, and every once in a while, you actually want to follow through with those calls because that's a great way to to create evaluation for yourself. Yep. To kind of figure out, and you're in that business, you'd be a great advisor to call. Hey, engage. thank hey, you, Ed. Product placement. <laughs> Was that on the script or? It no. should have been. <laughs> it should have it been. It should have been. My marketing department's right now tearing their hair out saying, why don't you make everybody say that? <laughs> so you said that you said that you were a bad seller when you sold that first business. Absolutely. Yeah. And part of that was because you're a minority shareholder, so you couldn't really drive the bus. You could only sort of grab at the steering wheel every once in a while. By sale four, in what way were you a better seller? Were you a better seller? Well, absolutely, yeah. What what happened was it is that I was so emotionally attached to the first one. Uh, you know, it, it it's not the same thing, and and it's probably a really bad analogy, but it's like selling your baby or selling you know your the one of the things that you love a family member. It just really was. Um, I was that emotionally attached to it, and then after I went through that one and realized that perhaps my career, if I could call it a career, would be building and selling companies, I began to think about it in a different way, that the actual end game was to sell it and to sell it successfully. And by successfully, 
it it meant that they were happy, I was happy, there was a good outcome for both of us, and that the transition part was actually part of building the business, that I was able to transition out of the business to be able to go do the next thing. So the transition was organic. And in effect, basically, it sticks somebody else with having to stay with the buyer instead of you. <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> right? absolutely. So that's the the process. Then is to build a team so that uh, I was dispensable, and actually, they didn't. You know, you know, why why should we keep that guy? Um, now, now I'm curious, uh, and I may be all wet here, but I'm curious if also the financial dynamic changes. You know, when you sell your first business, I suspect, but do not know that that was a lifestyle-changing event for you? I would say the first one wasn't. Okay. Um, when you start getting into the second and third, because the first two I had to have angel investing to build the business. Yep. Everything else was uh, out of my own pocket, self-funded. Okay. And the reason for that is that I found out in the way that I work is that um, I am able to risk my money uh, but not so much somebody else's. I'm more careful with other people's money so that it, it hindered the ability for me to actually do the kind of the on the edge things that I wanted to do. I can do that with my own uh, money, but not necessarily with someone else's. I, you know, I, I can understand that. You know, I, and I've long thought, even though the standard playbook for startup entrepreneurs is hit up friends and family, right? On the other hand, that can lead to some very awkward Thanksgiving dinner conversations if things don't go great. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? And the first one was a, 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 what I would consider a friend who had resources that actually funded the first one. And, uh, and, and of course, we don't talk anymore. So Okay. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, on that so, one, so. That, that is the risk, yeah, right? Yeah, that's the risk, yeah. Um, so it sounds to me like – well, I, I – I'm not going to answer the question for you. That's why I have you here. To what extent were these sales planned versus opportunistic? They sound like a hybrid to me, kind of. Well, I think the first one was opportunistic uh, because I really didn't understand. I mean, I was an idiot on the first one. I really was. And and I had a deep desire to create something and a desire to uh, perhaps bring that into the world and, and make it bigger and and – and what I didn't understand was that uh, through through my uh, immaturity, uh, I was, uh, you know, not a really good boss, not only not a good employee, but not a good boss. And so I think that uh, having that sale hit me and all the emotional stuff that went with that, it, you know, just reconsider a lot of stuff. At least I did. And then as I built... Um, you know, teams that actually were the core of the success. You can't be successful without a great team. I'm just really fortunate to have um, people that uh, were able to uh, help me and teach me and, um, you know, gather the things that we needed to be successful that were able to build these businesses up and sell them. So, um, I think I avoided your question. I'm not no, sure. I think, I, no, I think you eventually got around to answering yes. it. Yeah. Um, so a common thread here is that all of your businesses sold within two to three years or so. What did those businesses look like? What did they have in common that made them saleable at that three year period? Why, why do you, I'm sure it wasn't luck. Well, yeah, it is luck. I mean, it, it's, um, uh, 
you know, there's a thing called the lucky bus that drives around. And uh, if you're standing out on the street and the lucky bus stops and, and they say, are you ready to go? You got your bags packed and you have your bags packed and you're ready to go. You can hop on the bus. And the bags packed is actually the work to be done, the job to be done. If the lucky bus stops and they say, have you got your bags packed? And you go, no, no, wait a minute. I'll, I'll go finish packing. When you come back out, the bus is going to be gone. So um, the idea I think we had uh, going forward after the first one was to kind of always be in the way of a larger company. How could we, you know, imagine this giant that's, that's you know, walking or stumbling around. How can we annoy them enough that they'll look down and pick us up and go, oh, yeah, this looks tasty, I'll eat it. Um, that was the idea. So what we did was we developed ways to uh, deploy software and ideas in the world so that we wound up uh, in front of a large uh, corporate entity that uh, we knew eventually would probably want to do what we were doing, but they weren't fast enough uh, to be able to do it. And so they would say, okay, well, it's just cheaper for us to kind of scoop this up and go with it. So what that tells me is that your your approach has been always pre-prepared to be opportunistic. Yeah, right? so yeah, to sell, right, and to sell. And one of the things I would encourage uh, entrepreneurs and CEOs to do is uh, there's a thing called due diligence, which is very exciting. And it's even more exciting if it's a public company because when they want to buy you, they really come and look at everything. It's basically a proctologic. It's basically a proctological exam without the anesthetic. Or, yeah, I'll yeah. just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it lasts, you know, uh, not seconds, but hours and days. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> just to make it extra fun. Yeah, extra fun. So, uh, what I learned after the first one was to create, uh, and I'll make it simple, like you know, those little paper boxes that you put files in. So when you're doing things like you, you have a contract or you have an employment agreement or you have a, anything that's paper that's important that they're going to look at later on, you just make a second copy, you throw it in that box, hmm. and you know when the due diligence comes around, you can just go point at that box and go, all the stuff you want's in that box. And it makes it a lot easier because when they do come and do due diligence, you, you know, if you're not ready you got to go through all your files and find this stuff, and it's really time-consuming. And and distracting. And distracting, right? yes. And and also, you know, i got to believe, and I've always advised clients about on this, so I hope I'm right. There's something to be, there's something to be said for making yourself easy to buy. Absolutely. It doesn't yeah. necessarily make you more or less valuable, right. but just offering that path of least resistance. <laughs> well, what, what can happen is that um, – for instance, um, you, when you talk about opportunity, one of the purchases that was uh, made with one of the software companies was that the public company had actually issued some bonds, so they had, had gotten some cash, and they had a timeline when they had to spend that cash. So, you know... Sounds like the government. Absolutely. we got a budget to buy stuff. Let's go buy stuff. And, um, and that's somebody's job to be done, is to do M&A. So yep. somebody at a corporate office is, is absolutely getting bonuses and uh, pay on buying companies. So there's there's actually people that do that, and they have goals and they have responsibilities. So um, 
they had this money they had to spend by a certain time. So it gave us a couple things. It gave us the upper limit of the purchase. It gave us the timing. And uh, then we kind of, that gives you a leverage that perhaps um, they might not know that you know and helps you in the negotiation. So you got to make sure that when you're getting bought that you're paying attention to those kind of things. Well, that's interesting. That's a a blog post I have an aching to write, but but you're right. There is this, there is sort of this moral hazard on the buy side when when companies have a dedicated business development from an acquisition perspective or corporate development function. Right? right. Those are people who are judged based on how much stuff they buy. Yep. And often, whether or not it's a good acquisition or not, there's so much turnover. Those people aren't around. Yep. Whether it's a good deal or not. Right. And, and Although the prudent thing to do, because we have a pro deal bias, the prudent thing to do may be to walk away from a deal. Nobody ever gets interviewed on Bloomberg or on the Wall Street Journal for someone who walked away from a deal. That's correct. It's never yeah. happened. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So if, if you are being approached by somebody that's got that corporate development function, they need wins. Yeah. They, they need just wins. Do. And they need certain dollar ranges that they're buying in. They're, they're, certain ways that they're buying in terms of how they model their transactions. So cash, stock, earnouts, uh, what happens to the founders, what happens to the team, all those things are consideration. It's, you know, a lot of us think about the buyout as being, oh, it's a certain dollar amount. But there's a lot of nuance that you can create for yourself um, and your team that uh, you can do in a deal. Now, I don't know that you've been in this situation because your your model for – for building and selling a business has been so focused on a venture capital type model. But I'm going to throw it out there anyway. And that is, are there signs out there where an owner needs to think about actively selling a business, supposed to being opportunistic that you can think of, or maybe you've experienced where, you know, we're at a point now where it's really time for this business to sell or it's time for me to get out or some combination. Is that something you can speak to? Yeah, sure. I, I think that that's a, um, an interesting thing that happens. There are cycles that we see. Uh, we're in a happy time right now. It's not going to continue to be a happy time, and that's just the way the market works. Yep. So uh, I own some commercial real estate now. Now I'm I'm thinking about it's time to sell uh, because I think we're at a uh, a pretty good place in the market, and I think that's also true of a business. There could be things going on with the team. There could be things that you know about the technology and perhaps where it's going that you may want to try to cash out. So absolutely. Um, I think an example for that for me was that, uh, you know, 2008 um, was the precursor to a horrible 2009. And uh, we had the online community and there was a, uh, a company that was rolling communities up and they had approached us about um, selling uh, the year before, and we said no because we were still revenues were rising and we were still building things. and And uh, I was of a mindset that, uh, oh, this is going to continue and go up next year. And the guy that was wanting to buy us, we're on the phone, and he's literally screaming at me on the phone, saying, "Take the cash, take the cash. I'll pay all cash." And I'm saying, no, I think we'll be worth more next year. Well, guess what? We weren't more 
worth more. It didn't work out. <laughs> it didn't work out. <laughs> it went down, and it took us a couple more years to sell it. So, huh. Okay. Yeah. So when you sold your businesses, were these do, do-it-yourself jobs, or did you kind of put a team around you to help you? Well, the the team part is a CPA, and uh, also we use the same uh, uh, legal team to do the sell part. The deal structure, uh, the first one I was a, a minority shareholder in, and so I wasn't as involved in that and progressively got more involved in the, in the other ones and pretty much full on, you know, I think the idea is that you agree on a, on a face to face. Usually you kind of agree with the principles. This is the price, the terms, what happens to the team, what happens to you. And you kind of wind up with maybe a one pager, a page and a half. And then it's called a term sheet for those yes, of us in the audience. Term sheet. Yep, yes, term sheet. Thank yep. you. Oh, I knew there was a name for that. <laughs> and, um, and then what happens is that two pages turns into 30 or 50 pages of uh, mind-numbing legalese and schedules. Oh, boy, you're not kidding. Yeah. and uh, so that's Except it's only one of the most important decisions in your life, so you have to read it. You have to read it, and uh, you have to have a team that can interpret it for you, and you have to have um, uh, both on the financial side and on the legal side Someone to make sure that what you think is happening in your head is actually what's in the document. That's the most important thing. It's like you can look at the documents and you can see, you know, what the outcome will be if certain things happen. You know, I got tripped up once by one word in a document that was part of a uh, an earnout, and uh, it, you know, it cost a big bucket of money because we we interpreted that word differently than what it actually meant. And hmm. uh, and that was one word in a probably a 40-page document. Whew. Ouch. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> yeah, but y- unless you make those mistakes and see them, you can't learn from them. So. Well, yeah, and and exactly why I think you have such a a, a fascinating and valuable perspective because you've had the opportunity to make those mistakes, live to fight another day, right? right. And like I said, most people don't see four transactions. They don't see four sales. Right. Well, most I, people see one. Yeah, I've been I've been lucky. Absolutely. So, at any point, as you were considering a sale, were you concerned over what would happen the day after? What would happen to you the day after you wake up? All of a sudden, there's no office you have to be in. Well, that there was never a no office to be in. There's yeah. always a time you have to stay with the business. And uh, after the first one, I was able to say, all right, I know uh, my job to be done in the world is to start them and sell them. So I know when the new people come in, uh, you know, I want to under-promise and over-deliver, but I also want to have a team in place to where the business really doesn't need me. My job was to think about the really big things. And so usually by the time the deal was done, um, or even before that, uh, I would be envisioning the next uh, thing that I would be building. And that's always been the case is that, I okay, I know it's time to sell because I'm thinking about something else. Did you ever find that being involved in a sale was kind of an emotional roller coaster? Uh, it's absolutely an emotional roller coaster all the time. And remember this idea of of kind of uh, looking at every six months someone calls you and they say, hey, maybe we should do a deal. 
Well, I would do those to see kind of what the value is, to see how prepared I was, to see if our story was right, and to see if it was a real deal. And sometimes there are uh, corporations that want to really go to school on you, so they'll say, hey, we're interested in buying you. And you go, oh, that's exciting. Come on in. I'll tell you everything. Right. And then they go, oh, we've decided to build it ourselves. Thanks. You're totally catfished. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So you have to... You have to know at what point when you go, oh, these guys are going to school, and then you just kind of shut it down. So I've had those experiences where I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, no, I'm not going to show you that. Thanks. Um, and, and how about within? I mean, in my experiences, most deals are called off at least once before they ultimately happen. Yeah, absolutely, right? yeah. And and how do you kind of stick with that and keep a level head as opposed to just, you know, setting up a YouTube video of yourself taking a baseball bat to a room full of computers and file cabinets? Or maybe you do that, and that's right. how you sort of keep your head on straight. Right. That's, how do you manage that? That's why glassware is always in danger when they're around me. So <laughs> please don't bring me glassware. Um, I, I think the idea is to isolate it from the team and and compartmentalize it in your brain because what ha what can happen I've seen this with teams where the CEO uh, gets excited about a sale and they move off the mark of what they're trying to do with growing the business and these things can take six months uh, a year it can take that long to find out it's a folly so if you get pulled off growing the business and what happens is your business dips so your next sell gets delayed because you got to build that back up. So the idea is isolate it from the team until you actually have a term sheet that looks real and looks doable and maybe even the first draft of the purchase agreement. And then um, make sure that while you're doing that, you're continually uh, serving the business. And that's another great reason to sort of have your due basically build your due diligence package as you go along. Absolutely. Because then you don't have to bring your team in. Yep. Um, and there's no sort of smoking gun, right? If you've hired people that are smart, you start asking for documents all of a sudden, they'll realize that's why. <laughs> yeah. Right. But yeah, if yeah. all of a sudden you just have this box and you just say here, right. Then that gives you the option, right? To yeah. be if a little you, bit more. If you're walking around, can you sign this employment agreement really quickly? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. It's a little late. Yeah. My, my lawyer will be back to you with <laughs> yes. some thoughts on yeah. what I'd like in order to sign that agreement, yes. right? Um, and, and and sort of the other side to that too is is deals die uh, a thousand deaths, but also you know deals are never done until they're done. And I think you know I've seen this. You've probably seen it too. Is plenty of businesses die while they're up for sale? Yeah, because the process of selling a business really becomes a full time job. Right, and it can very easily distract you from actually running your business to the point where. Uh, maybe a deal just doesn't happen because it doesn't happen, or I've seen, I've even seen it where the business has deteriorated so much during the due diligence process that it's just no longer the valuable asset that prompted the initial proposal to buy in the first place. Yeah, absolutely, right? that's correct. Yeah, and, and and that's why it's important, I guess, to have those advisors and have that due diligence ready to go because you've got to just accept that it's two full time jobs. Yeah, it's the it's the exact. Uh, same thing as raising capital, only you're selling the business. It's the same kind of process. And so when you're 
raising institutional money, you're also doing the same kind of things, and it's the same kind of roller coaster, uh, but it's the end game. Uh, so. and, and I'll share with you a secret that I tell my buy side clients. Oh, a secret. Yeah, right. secret okay. is that a lot, many, buy, many sellers, if they've never sold a business before, they start to get what I call Costa Rica syndrome. Yeah. Which means that mentally, the second they think that those dollars are coming in, yep. they're already halfway to their, to their condo in Costa Rica. Yeah. Absolutely. Right? Yep. And once they're there, the buyer acquires extraordinary leverage. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And even for no, let's, let's say they initially talked about a $10 million purchase price. Well, in, my, in our due diligence, we really are only want to pay seven. Yeah. Right. And if the seller has exposed themselves where the, the business is going to be hard to recover, but also mentally, yeah. they have to now say, they have to get back from their tropical paradise. Yep. <laughs> right. And cocktail drinks and so forth and come back. They don't want to do that. Now they're just looking at that $3 million difference as a number. But, well, I've still got $7 million left. Just let me do this so I can go, go to my Costa Rica. <laughs> right. right? Yep. And I think it, it confers a tremendous amount of leverage yeah. for, the, for, the sell, for the buyer. Yeah. I, I've had stuff happen, you know, at closing or right before closing where, you know, they come, you know a buyer will come back and say, well, you know, maybe we should do this. And you have to be prepared to say no. Yeah. You have to be able, you know, be able to say, ah, you know what? That's okay. We'll pass. Yeah, and, that's right. Uh, so if you can't, if, if you can't walk away from a deal of any kind, you're not negotiating. You're just asking. Yeah. And that, and that's the part about the business. If your business is solid enough that you can say no, that's a great business to have, uh, because that means there's going to be another buyer. And, and also you always want to have a horse race. Even if it's a pretend horse, um, so that a stalking when, horse, <laughs> yes, so that when when you're winding up with a single buyer, there's always this other entity that perhaps might pay more or do quicker or be kinder to your employees, that sort of thing. So a one buyer deal is really no fun. Well, and even by setting yourself up the way that you've described, the other horse is you. Is yourself, right? Yeah, right? You can stick around. I can right. always not sell. Yeah. And because I'm the idea person and not the operational person, my lifestyle is still okay. Yeah. Right? And, and you know, we'll, we'll just sort of reset and wait for the next the next person. And that makes you pretty much impervious to the Costa Rica syndrome. Yeah. And nothing against Costa Rica. I could have just as easily said Tahiti, but. Yeah, or a friend make, of mine, Macon, Georgia. Or Macon, yeah. Georgia, yeah. Absolutely, but yeah. Friend of, one of my clients sold a business and went down to Costa Rica, and, and they love it. So, yeah. um, Well, this has been great. We're sort of running out of time here, but there's a lot of ground that could be covered. If somebody's kind of thinking about maybe selling their own business, could they contact you for a little bit of advice? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. How, how, what would be the best way for them to do that? Uh, send me an email, ed at softlink.com, S-O-F-T-L-I-N-C.com. Okay. Or call Mike. Yeah. Or there you go. Um 
but Ed might be free. I know that I'm not. Yeah. Uh, so that's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Ed Ricker so much for joining us and sharing his expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week, so please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Brady Ware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.